look again this morning into the book of Acts and, or I'm sorry, Luke. We want to consider a very important passage, theologically important, historically important, uh, and for us a very powerful reminder of the purpose of Christ's coming and also his role as prophet and what it means to be a prophet of God in the world, uh, specifically with reference to uh, those that we often think of as being the rulers of society, whether it be political or religious, uh, economic, educational, wherever that, those authorities lie. Uh, we're going to talk about the role of the people of God, and specifically the prophets of God. And this role, I believe, um, is still extant, extant in this day. Um, Pastor Leach and I have had a couple of conversations about the role of prophets, and uh, especially with our study in the Minor Prophets on Sunday night, uh, we talk about pro- the prophetic office as being something that culminated with the uh, apostles. And I really don't know that that is uh, an accurate representation of what the Bible teaches, but rather the office of prophet, not so much of foretelling the future that we often associate with it, but rather of, of foretelling or declaring the word of God against the sin of society and of his people. And that is a, a, probably the one most important aspect of the role of prophet. In Scripture, and we're going to find Christ fulfilling that in our passage this morning that we've already read. And so let's go, Lord, in prayer as we get into the study of Christ's relationship with um, the rulers of his day, the authorities, and with the capital city of Jerusalem. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your word, and we pray as we look into it that your spirit might direct our thoughts and also direct our attention to your truth and to its application. And Lord, that we might have that boldness and that uh, confidence that when we speak your word, that none can stand against it and yet all stand against it to some degree in their will. And yet the culmination of all things is in your hand. And one day all every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. Until that day, Lord, that we might be faithful, even as you were, of calling and calling again men to repentance. And Lord, that we might not be amongst that number that resists that call. That we might be found of that sort that would surrender ourselves quickly. Your calling comes upon our life in any form. Again, Lord, we thank you for the example and testimony of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for the instruction, ultimately for his work of saving us from our sin. Guide us in our study this morning. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, the very same day that Christ just gets done communicating that the way of salvation is narrow and few there be that find it, that that way is one that needs to be striven after, that men are knowledgeable of it and yet choose to linger at its gate rather than enter it. We find that Pharisees come to him and since they were unable to really silence his ministry or to uh, raise up the people against his ministry and they are going to stop trying that's going to come up again Um, they want to invoke upon christ and his ministry other authorities so if he's not going to um, be intimidated by religious authority they're going to come to him on the premise of secular authority if you will And of course, as believers, we know that there really is no, that the secular authorities are established by God. And so we use the term secular, which really means without God. Um, We use it marginally because we don't really mean that. 
Uh, we simply use it to say non-religious authorities, for we know that every authority in our life is there by God's hand. And so, really there is no such thing as a truly secular authority in your life. Whether that be in your home, in your church, in your community, at your workplace, um, that God is the one who has raised up and established authorities. And even the most heinous of authorities, we have a responsibility to recognize that God is purposeful in that and is uh, engaging that authority. Uh, and that that authority will ultimately be accountable uh, not to history, not to mankind, not to his, to, uh, his, uh, to his people, but ultimately every authority is responsible before God. So here comes the Pharisees. And uh, their statement is, get out of here, which is something that they've wanted to say all along. Depart from us. Get out of here. And this is an unusual. It's not the first time it's happened. They've wanted him to leave many times, haven't they? Uh, they've wanted him to be quiet, to be silent. Uh, they wanted to condemn him. They want to stone him. They want to uh, remove him. Uh, and they've tried every mechanism to try to do that, to silence him. Uh, we have found that... Uh, uh, when he sent the disciples out, um, he, they were told that if they want you to depart, to leave. Um, and that has been the statement when the people came to him and said, we want you to leave, he left. Um, but on this occasion, he's being threatened. Satan is depart from here uh, because you are being hunted. Get out and depart from here for Herod wants to kill you, verse 31. And so uh, we find this record that Herod wants to kill them. We are very familiar with the relationship with Herod, with those of the Christian community. We know that his relationship with John the Baptist, uh, that he was responsible for the death and imprisonment, and then ultimately the death of John the Baptist. You might say, well, it was really his, uh, the women involved there, but uh, he carries the weight of that. He has the responsibility of it. And so Herod had slain John the Baptist. Of course, that brought not resolution to the issue, but more fear into Herod's life. And in fact, when he got word that this Jesus of Nazareth was out there doing these things, his conclusion was this was John the Baptist uh, raised back from the dead. And so it all well, here it comes all back again on me. And so that was his concern. And so it's not out of the way to believe that Herod may have been wanting to kill Jesus. We don't have any direct record of that uh, statement coming out of Herod's mouth. But we do know that he was very concerned and sought an audience with Jesus Christ. Um, and uh, that Herod uh, had, was a murderous man. And so we know that as well. And with all that knowledge, it, it's not far-fetched to believe that this may have been true, this account that they came to him with, that Herod wants to kill you. Um, and Jesus Christ himself does not question that account. Uh, he does not... Uh, uh, question its veracity at all. He simply uh, is going to respond to it. And so his statement is, if you've got word from Herod that Herod's on his way and wants to kill me and maybe has identified where I am ministering, because remember, we are drawing nearer and nearer to Jerusalem. And so as Jesus Christ comes nearer, the reach of Herod becomes much more uh, effectual. And so these individuals may have had that kind of, of contact with Herod. Uh, Herod spent some time in Jerusalem. He had a palace there. Most of the time he preferred to spend out the coast. Um, and, and he had an expansive place in Caesarea at the sea. Um, and that's where he preferred to spend most of his time. That was a Roman place he had built. And he really didn't prefer the company of the uh, Jewishness of Jerusalem so much. He preferred to associate himself with the Romans. Um, and so we find him um, spending more time out there. But yet he was there in Jerusalem. He did have a palace and fortress there. And uh, so the closer Jesus got to Jerusalem, that was certainly going to be more and more of a concern. And so the likelihood of someone from a village, a leader of the Pharisees, coming to Jesus from Jerusalem, or someone from that community having contact with Jerusalem becomes more and more realistic the nearer we get to the city itself. The statement is to run and hide. To depart from here, to get out, um, because you're being hunted. Jesus Christ, uh, like many of the prophets, 
uh, demonstrates a willingness to stand. To stand their ground for righteousness and to recognize that part of the weight of carrying that statement, that message of repentance, is that people are going to want to kill you. Nothing is new. Uh, what Christ is going to do, though, is he's going to <laughs> uh, press the Pharisees in this matter. He's already done this uh, by identifying them with their forefathers. And he's going to continue to do this really right up until uh, the event of his, of his crucifixion. He's going to press them the fact that you are like your forefathers who always rebelled against God, who went into um, uh, sin against him, and in response to God sending messengers to you, your response was to kill them. You hated them, you sought to silence them, and you hunted them and killed them. And so uh, he's not just going to speak against Herod and the political authority, but he's going to be inclusive of the Pharisees themselves because they associate themselves with the forerunners of the religious leadership of Israel, but they never identify themselves with the prophets of Israel. And that it needs to be recognized is that they recognize themselves as the uh, as the uh, children of the religious authorities of Israel, and the prophets weren't part of that body. In fact, most prophets were called from outside of that body. Now, some prophets were of the priestly realm of the priestly tribe, but they were largely called from outside of that religious authority, and they spoke against the religious authorities as well as the political authorities of their day. Jesus Christ comes as such an individual. He comes to speak, and, and so he first is going to address the, the political authority. Not the first time he's done this. He did this at the death of John the Baptist. He's going to do it here again when the uh, threat comes against his person. He says, go tell that fox. We immediately find him not mincing any words, does he? Don't you love that? Um, we would uh, take issue with that, I think, in many of our churches today, if uh, our pastor got up and called people names. Um, but Christ did it pretty consistently. I mean, he called people whitewashed sepulchers. He called them hypocrites. I mean, almost every encounter we have throughout this section of Luke, you have Christ introducing his his statements by calling someone a name. Either hypocrite, sinner. I mean, he just, he's just willing to lay it out there. And so he comes to Herod and he calls him a fox right off the bat. We already know that there's an antagonistic relationship between Christ's message and Herod's rule. Herod's authority was there by God. That doesn't deny the fact that Herod was not surrendering that authority to the God who gave him that authority. And so we distinguish between the authority that God has placed there and the administration of that authority by the ones put into that role. And so while we talk about submitting to the authorities that exist, it does not say that we then uh, throw up our hands and say, well, whatever they do is God's will. That is not what Christ is teaching here. Rather, they are placed there to do a work that God has placed them there to do. Yet that does not mean that God has designed them to sin. For God does not design sin. He is there to fulfill a role, but their sin is their own choice, as we're going to see here very soon. And so, is, is it God's will for them to be in that role of authority? Yes. Is it God's will for them to abuse that role of authority? No. God's expectation is that they will use it properly and rightly. And so here Christ sets himself up in opposition, obviously, against the authority in his life. Is he going to surrender that authority? To death he is going to surrender that authority. Let that sink in. He could have called 10,000 angels and come off that cross. He could have avoided the cross. He could have. Um, but he surrendered. He surrendered his life to the authorities around him, including, and Herod was involved in that mix, and I know Pilate was ultimately the one that was 
given that uh, right, but, but Herod's authority was mixed in there. And so we find that surrendering to the authority does not mean approval of the exercise of that authority. There needs to be a discernment, a distinguishment there. And so here Christ, even in this role of surrendering to authorities and recognizing them, is decrying them and calling them what they are and for what they are. And this is the disciples sought to replicate and to, to bring into their life as well, that they surrendered to the authorities, but they said, we're going to obey God rather than man. Um, and, and you need to do what you got to do against us, but we got to do what we have to do, and we'll surrender to your punishment of us. And so you beat us. You tell us not to preach. We keep preaching. You beat us and tell us not to preach. We're going to keep preaching, and we're going to take your beatings. And at the end of the beatings, we're not going to rebel and raise up an insurrection against you. We are going to do what? We're going to leave rejoicing that we are counted worthy of getting beaten for sharing Christ. Wow, that's surrender. And yet it is not acknowledging that that authority is doing what is right. And so we find here the willingness of Christ to identify this one as a fox. And he really doesn't go much further than that. He says, tell the fox, here's, here's my itinerary. <laughs> here's where he can find me. I'll tell you exactly when I'm going to walk into Jerusalem. A fearlessness that's built not out of out of uh, uh, foolishness, but rather a fearlessness that understands the purposes at work. That there are things happening well beyond the evil that Herod and others bring, and the Pharisees and Sadducees. But rather, there is a working of God here to turn what they desire to make evil into the greatest thing that could happen to humanity. And let there be no mistaking what the Sanhedrin, what Pilate, what Herod, what the mob who cried out, crucify him, all intended was evil. And God turned that evil to good. And that is what God has promised to do. He is not therefore taking responsibility for that evil, nor causing that evil, nor is he rejoicing in the evil. Men are committing these evils, are accountable to God for each and every one of them as an act of their own will against the will of God. But God, it says, works all things together for the good of those who love him. And ultimately here, he's going to work together these the authorities together for the good. Christ has that confidence in God's working and the purposefulness of God's plan to do His work within the confines of the sinfulness of man to still accomplish His ultimate end or destiny. So Christ decries Herod, sets Himself in an adversarial relationship with him, calls him that fox, says, here's my itinerary, you go tell him what it is, and we'll see what happens. Do I expect him to raise up an opposition against me? Yes. I have every historical reason to believe it. I have every, not just in Herod's history, but historically all the way back. And we're going to talk about the history of Jerusalem this morning a little bit. I have every understanding of Herod as a person. I know what he's like. And I have every expectation that he will run in opposition to my person and teaching. Yet I have every confidence in the ultimate conclusion of the matter, in verse 32, a very powerful statement, I shall be perfected. Is in the New King James Version. I shall be perfected. Some will have um, a statement referencing the resurrection of Christ, but this whole idea of completeness. When I get there, everything will be complete. It will come together with a completeness that will fulfill the purposes of God for the regeneration of all men. And so, I have a confidence that in the end, it will be perfect. 
completely complete. There will be a fullness. And, and, and this resurrection is certainly a vital aspect of it, of the culmination of the work of Christ there and the resurrection and ascension. But we find this, this completeness to the plan of God, that it can be trusted. And therefore, I come before these authorities and stand in opposition to them with great boldness because what they do to my flesh isn't the end. What they do to me isn't the conclusion of the matter. And this, the, the Christian needs to take into account, why do we stand up and say, these in authority are sinning, and we tell it to all about them, and we tell it to them? You understand the difference? You know, we, in the Christian community, love to talk about the sin of our leadership, of our authorities, whether it be congressmen or president, politicians in general, whether it be uh, regionally. Uh, we like to sit around with our coworkers and talk about um, how unfair we're being managed or whatever. Um, but it's a whole other thing to say it to them, isn't it? But it's in the saying it to them that the prophets demonstrated their trust in God's purposes. He spoke to them. And you can't miss it. You read through the prophets, both the major and minor prophets, uh, the instances of prophecies, you will see them walking right up to the king and saying, you're a dirty, rotten sinner. You need to repent. They'll walk right up to the religious leadership and said, you are leading Israel astray. What are you doing? You have the high places where you're offering sacrifices and then you run down to, to Gilgal and offer sacrifices to quote-unquote Jehovah. You think this is pleasing to them that you can do these both? can't. They come right up to the authority that they are called to be accountable to and hold them accountable to their authority, which is God Almighty. And so Christ does. And in so doing, He calls them to repentance. He calls them to understanding that role that authority plays in our life. It is not that we simply that surrendering to authority or submitting to authority simply means we capitulate to what they're doing without identifying sin as sin. Historically, up until this modern era, and I would say since World War II, the church has always engaged itself to some degree with the sin of its society. But again, we have, we have steadily, since 1962, we have steadily isolated the, the prophet from being any kind of influence on society. Saying, you have no right to speak to this. 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 And we have been abrogated to this little corner. You can address spiritual issues and that's it. Yeah, June 1962, that's when I was born. And that's when the Supreme Court did its thing. No, you're not allowed to pray at school. You don't have any business in the educational community. And from there, it just started to more and more aspects that we're not allowed to engage in. The prophet of God speaks to every facet of community to the society. When he sees sin anywhere, he identifies it. And he speaks to the sinner and calls on repentance, identifies a sin, and Christ is no different. And so he says, listen, you look, behold, he says, I cast out demons, perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. I've got some work to do. I'm on my way there. I'm going to be busy about my work. If he wants me, come find me. But ultimately, I don't fear him because he's not the end. And my death is not the end. I think it's kind of humorous that our um, government, um, by the way, our government, whenever they pass laws now, they understand who our God is, and our God is no longer liberty. It used to be. 
Um, Americans love liberty. Um, not true anymore. We have given that up. We, have, we don't want liberty anymore. We have surrendered that entirely. We don't even seek it. We're not interested in liberty anymore. Um, and so uh, they know who our God is. They fashioned this God over the last few centuries. I'll say centuries. Um, and uh, so now when they pass laws like the health care law, if you don't want to abide by the law, they don't imprison you. What do they do? Because liberty doesn't mean anything to you anymore. You used to care a lot to Christian community and to the American community, liberty. And so incarceration, taking away your liberty, was a big deal. Not a big deal right now because you're all pretty much prisoners. Um, you're all in debt, aren't you? You're somebody's prisoner. And um, so when they pass a law like the health care package, the penalty for not participating, for not having health insurance is a fine. Because that's your God. You don't believe me? Go watch professional sports and see what they do when you do bad things. 15 yards doesn't mean anything. $50,000. Now that's something. You see, back in the day, a 15-yard penalty on the football field was substantial because that was important. Getting kicked out of a game, that was important. It was substantial. But the NFL knows who's got, who our gods are. They know the only thing to get that kind of violence off the field is to hit them where it counts. It doesn't count in yardage. It doesn't count in playing time. What counts? Money. So the only thing that slows them down and makes them think twice before they do something violent is, what's this going to cost me? Tomorrow, when the commissioner sends out the fines. This is where our society has gone. They understand that. And, and so the prophet is called upon to speak to society. When we remove the prophet of God, this is where it leads. Do we respond to these authorities? Well, we respond to the authorities, and, and, and as I said, it's kind of humorous because they're not going to do injury to my person. They're going to try to empty my bank account because they think that's my God like it is all their gods. So I empty my bank account for them. Christ here isn't afraid because... He's not afraid of death. How can you threaten someone who's not afraid of what you're trying to threaten them with? My dad used to have a little ditty. He'd say, I'm going to beat you with a wet noodle. Um, whenever he's messing around with you, you know, I'm going to beat you with a wet noodle. Why is that funny? Because it's nothing to be afraid of. So the government can sit there and say, oh, I'm going to fine you, I'm going to fine you, I'm going I'm to incarcerate you. But ultimately, if we're going to do what is right and we're going to stand and say, this is where I'm going to take my stand and I'm going to stand for righteousness in this state, in this condition, um, and the world comes against us, they, they can only have victory over us in that which we fear. And Christ says, there's nothing here I'm afraid of. I'm not afraid of it. Let him exercise his authority. Even unjustly, let him exercise it against me because death is not something I fear. And if someone's not afraid of the punishment, then the punishment doesn't mean anything, does it? Right? If a 15-yard penalty doesn't mean anything to me, then it cannot curb me. Right? But if $50,000 fine or $100,000 fine means something to me, then it'll curb my behavior. For the Christian, our behavior, and for the prophet, is to speak out against sin. What can curb that action? What can the world use to curb that action? And yes, in our country, historically, they have imprisonment for that. You don't believe me? You haven't read John Bunyan. That happened in our country, did it not? No? England? England, sorry. Why did I think that was in the United States? Pilgrim's Progress, written in jail. Why? Because he's... Wouldn't stop preaching. So they took away what they thought was precious to him, his liberty. And they'll threaten us. 
You want to stand for righteousness in this society? They're not going to take away your liberty. They're going to take away your money. That's the God of our society. They believe that that will curb you. And in fact, their belief is substantiated. Churches are closing their mouths. Why? Why? We're going to revoke your tax-exempt status. What has the government just threatened us with? We're going to take away your money. Tax-exempt status means almost nothing. Truly. What does it mean? It means when I go and buy materials for this building, you have to pay taxes. They're threatening 6%. Right? Isn't that what the tax rate is? Something like that? 7, 7% sales tax. They're threatening property tax. Ooh. But you know what? For the church, that capitulates to government, threatens their tax-exempt status, you've just shown the world who your God is. Your God is their God, the dollar. You see, they come to threaten Christ, and it doesn't work. Because Christ isn't afraid of the worst they can do. We buckle under and bend over um, because they threaten to take away 5, 6, 7, 8, 10% of what comes in the plate. How much is your liberty to speak worth? I'm not talking about one or two churches. This is the norm. Bob Jones University a while back after some court cases, finally, was taken away their tax-exempt status. They survived. Can you believe it? By the way, if you're wondering, um, we don't have a tax-exempt number. Sorry. If they're worried about your exemptions from your uh, taxes, you can talk to me. It's not a problem because of the Constitution. Christ isn't intimidated by Herod because he knows the limitations of Herod. That Herod cannot do anything to him but kill him. And killing him simply is the step towards perfecting him. How can your boss shut you up? Threaten your job? It's the worst he could do. Demote you, not let you get a raise, fire you. And if that shuts you up, he's just found your God. Hasn't he? Or she? Christ is going to speak against sin because he did not fear anything they could do. For he trusted in God, who can work all things together for the good of those who love him and call according to his purposes. The prophets could preach and preach and preach and even develop this huge adversarial group in front of them and keep preaching even as they're being lowered into a pit, even as they're being uh, put on the chopping block, even as they're being strung up and, and, and torn apart. Uh, they can keep preaching because they did not fear men nor the worst that men could do to them. They feared God. They said, oh, that men might be against me, then God be for me. If God is for me, and God is approving of what I'm doing, then let men do whatever they choose to do to me. I cannot fear that. You're beating me with a wet noodle. You threaten my pocketbook. You threaten my freedom. You threaten my job. You threaten my life. They're empty. Oh, that we would empty the threats of the world by trusting in a true, powerful, all-wealthy God. And putting that as a treasure of our heart. And then, when men threaten us, it's worthless because 
they're threatening us with wet noodles. Ooh. Christ here isn't intimidated by the threat because he has a confidence that this is within the purposes of God and God can use Herod to accomplish the purpose of his perfection, which is for our benefit. And so he gives Herod his itinerary. He says, I'll I'll be there in three days if you want to find me. If you want to do that, here's where I'll be and when I'll be there. Great little verse. An understanding what is involved when we are confronted with a world that wants us to go away, wants us to be quiet, wants us to submarine our faith so it doesn't make waves in their society. Why are we intimidated by them? So we must distinguish between surrendering to their authority and submarining our faith to their sin and making their God our God. We have been fashioned by our culture into a group of passive sheep because we have been insulated from things like pain. We are sure that sitting in here being a little bit under 65 degrees is horrible treatment. We've been insulated from loss. We think if our retirement fund isn't fully funded, that we are poor. We've been insulated from suffering. Just take some ibuprofen. Go to bed. What that has created is a softness. Because we don't feel pain, we're afraid of pain. Because we've never truly been poor, we fear poverty. Because we have never truly been uncomfortable, we fear discomfort. When men discover what you fear, they can control you. Christ feared nothing but purposes of God. And so he could not be intimidated. He could not be intimidated by the religious leaders. He could not be intimidated by the lawyers and their fancy pants questions. He could not be intimidated by Herod himself. He could not be intimidated by threatening of death. The Lord was above all that. And he saw it as an opportunity to be perfected. He understood his purpose. And it's time for the church to understand her purpose. Her purpose is to stand against sin. Her purpose is to preach against sin. Her purpose is to live against sin. And then to understand that the world will oppose that and will seek to quiet us, silence us, if necessary, to destroy us in their minds. And when we look at it, our conclusion should be, Go ahead. Throw your wet noodles at us. Christ identifies himself with his brethren before him. Cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. How many of the prophets of the day died in that city? The city of peace was the place prophets perished. And Christ now gives an indictment against Jerusalem after this very powerful, fearless statement. Oh, that we would have powerful and fearless Christianity in our life, in our church. He says, bring it on. We're not afraid of it. 
You'll stand for what is right. You'll call sin, sin. And you cannot intimidate me or frighten me from doing and from speaking the truth of God because nothing you throw at me frightens me. Nothing. He now has an indictment against those who would seek to threaten and silence the Word of God. It says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Why are we sent to the world? If the world is so evil and just wants to destroy us, why bother? Why don't we just cloister ourselves together and just enjoy one another's ministry and, and, and company and righteousness and we'll just go hide out together somewhere uh, down in Central America or something? I think that's what I told my kids. Let's go to Belize. Um, why don't we just cloister ourselves up and, and get a compound together and we'll just... Uh, disassociate from the world. I mean, look, they just hate us anyway. They just want to abuse us. They don't want our message. They tell us to shut up or we'll kill you. Um, why? Why did Christ, why did God send the prophets? Why? Because God has a will, a desire. He has a wish. God has wishes? Yes. God has a wish. He says, I want you. I want all of you to come to repentance. He told Jeremiah this. Go tell them this, because maybe they will. Maybe they'll all listen. Because that's what I want. I want them all to listen. So you go to them with this message, perhaps. He tells Jeremiah, perhaps everyone will listen and repent. Isn't that great? God wants it. So he sends these prophets to Jerusalem over and over again. Why? Because I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers your brood under her wings, but you were not willing. God wants us out there because he wants them to come to him. They, he wants them to be his children. He wants them in his family. And so because I've surrendered my will to God's will, what God wants is what I want. What God wants is what I want. What God wants is what we should want. And God wants them in His family. And so we go to them fearless because we want for them what God wants for them. You might say, well, that's enough then. I mean, if we want it bad and God wants it bad, I mean, between those two, it's got to happen, right? That's what the people tell us, you know, those positive thinkers. If you think positively, it'll happen. I don't know anyone who's thought more positively than God. I mean, think about it. For thousands of years, he sends prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, sends his son, dies. I mean, sends missionaries and church. And for thousands of years, he has sought to win everyone. I don't know how much more positive thinking you can get. And it doesn't happen. Why? Because you weren't willing. I'm not going to override what I've made you. I've made you a free agent. I've made you like me. I've made you in my image. And I'm not going to violate that in you. I'm not going to enforce my will upon you. I'm going to invite you to my will. I want you, not just once or twice, it says how often I wanted to gather your children together. God just sounds like, oh, I wish I could just go down there and give them all hugs. I can't because they don't want me. How often I would like to just wrap them up and take care of them and, and meet all of their needs and bless them and multiply them and, and just cuddle with them, but I can't because they don't want Every now and then one of these little rugrats comes in here and you just want to grab them and hug them. They're, they're doing this the whole time, you know, and you know what they want. Away. They want to get away. They want to run. They want to be free. And what do we do? Well, okay, set you down. Go run. Be free. When do they come and want to sit and be held? My brother bit my finger. Now all of a sudden they want you. And that's pretty much how we are with God. Truth be told. I want my liberty. I want my liberty. And God says, I'll give you liberty if that's what you want. But it's going to be misery. It's going to be loneliness. It's going to be suffering. It's going to be death. But that's what you want. 
There it is. It's not what I want. I wanted to gather you, but you weren't willing. It says, look, verse 35, your house is left you desolate. And surely I say you shall not see me till the time comes when you say, blessed is who comes in the name of the Lord. And so what's the conclusion of the matter? Because men don't want what God has to offer them. They end up desolate. They have nothing. Everything is removed from them. And, and if there's any description, I think, that, that describes eternal punishment as desolation. To be desolate. You have nothing. Nothing but the misery and the, and the heartache and the, and the guilt and the, and the, uh, the loss. And this is what's left in your house. And you rebel against God. It all started with Herod. Dealt with that authority. But we move in very quickly and, and understanding that the leadership of a people represent that, and the city represents the leadership of a nation, that capital. It says, listen, by calling Jerusalem, I'm really calling all of my people. I'm calling you to myself. I want you in a relationship with me, a, a, a intimate relationship, but you don't want it. And so what's left? What's left for you? Nothing. Desolation. Destruction. That's all that's left for you. And ultimately, the very blessing of His presence is going to be taken from them. It says, you're not going to see me again to you. Say, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And of course, they are going to say that with a triumphal entry. Many people think that that's what he's referring to. But rather, I see him pointing to His second coming when all Israel will finally say, Blessed is he until that time, desolation. They have nothing. Outside of Christ, there is nothing. When we begin to understand that that is the condition of this world, then suddenly the, the, the stakes are set and we realize that, okay, I can cloister myself and remove my message, the message of God's salvation from the lost and, and, and protect myself from any pain or loss or misery or discomfort. But now the stakes are set. There is either my discomfort and loss, which ultimately will be rewarded in heaven. I get paid for it. Or their desolation. My discomfort or their desolation. The stakes are drawn. And so we should have not only the confidence because we understand God's at work, but we understand what the stakes are for those that we are called to go to. So we go to Him with the confidence in God, first of all, to not let anything happen to us that we can't handle and to work it all out to our good, to the, to the good of uh, those who love Him, call according to your purposes. So we have that motivation, but this is secondary motivation is understanding that all that waits those is desolation if they do not respond to this message and they cannot respond if they do not hear. How can they hear if no one goes? Romans chapter 10. How can they hear without a preacher? And I'm not referring to a professional clergyman. That's referring to Christians proclaiming Christ wherever they go. You don't do it. They don't get it. And all that's left for them is desolation. That is not what God wants. And it should not be what we want for them. So they want evil. They want to kill us. Herod wants to kill you. I want to love him. And bless him. And save him. It's incredible. The irony of this passage. They want to destroy us. But they are the ones heading to destruction. We see that they're heading to destruction and God sees it and says, we want to save them. We go to them and they resist the gospel. Unwilling to receive it. They come to us to quiet us and we surrender. Figure it out. 
We who have the truth, we who have all the power, all the authority of God, we who have all the confidence, all, we have all the hope of glory are the ones that shut up and subjugate ourselves to their threatenings. We act afraid of them. We go to them with God, who they should be afraid of, and they are unwilling to receive that one. It's a marvel. Those who should be afraid are not. Those who should never be afraid are. What a horrible state. Oh, God, help us. Brethren, let's have the confidence of Christ to say, if we don't go there, there's only desolation. We want what God wants for them, and that is to bring them into his family. And there is nothing they can do against us that we should fear. Nothing. They're not going to talk to me anymore. Too bad. They won't invite me over anymore. Too bad. Is that really enough to silence you? You're afraid. Is ostracization from your from family, friends, or from your circle of influence really enough to silence you? Is that your God? Oh, that we would stand with Christ and say, we will do the work of God. We'll do it today, we'll do it tomorrow, and we'll do it till we're perfected. And in that work, and even your evil against us, God will perfect us. He will finish what he has begun, and we trust in him. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your powerful, calling upon our life. We thank you that you have taken away all things to fear. Lord, we say that, we don't understand it. We certainly don't live it very often. So Lord, we thank you for this reminder today. Lord, I pray that you might Make it real in our lives. It might come to the forefront of our thinking often. That we might have that confidence that you demonstrated there in Israel so many years ago when threatenings were breathed out against you. Lord, we pray that we might be diligent in seeing what you want for the world that we might want it for them as well. No matter the cost. And we consider that all that awaits them is desolation without you. Lord, give us that heart. Speed the gospel on its journey. Or the loss that you want to save. We pray says in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.